Just from the very top of the sacraments. Are you looking at it, Chen? I am. There are sacraments of evil as well as of good about us. And we live and move to my belief in an unknown world. A place where there are caves and shadows and dwellers in twilight. It is possible that man may sometimes return on the track of evolution. And it is my belief that an awful lore is not yet dead. HPPodcraft.com That is a quote not from H.P. Lovecraft, but from the revered author and actor Arthur Mackin. The quote comes from Mackin's story, The Red Hand, although he's probably best known for his 1890s horror novella, The Great God Pan. And a great tennis player. Yeah, and a great tennis, and a great kisser. What? I'm here with Chris Lackey. And I'm here with Chad Pfeiffer. <laughs> and this is the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. Uh, our reader that you heard just there is Stephen Brewster. Oh, Stephen. He's a wonderful guy. and uh, he's, a, he's an actor, performer, yeah. all-around cool dude. Yeah, and willing to read incredibly racist stories. Uh, <laughs> the reason that we uh, just had that bit of text on the show is because that is the epigraph for the story we were just talking about, H.P. Yes. Lovecraft's celebration of diversity. Uh, <laughs> the horror at Red Hook. It's a hard-boiled detective story. Yeah, it is. That was a little surprising, too. I mean, lo- lightly boiled. Lightly. <laughs> Maybe poached. Uh, yeah, I mean, he does still faint. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. No, this isn't written in first person. This is third person, omniscient, and we know that because there are things that happen that the main character doesn't know that we know as the reader. That said, it still feels like it's dominated by the detective's voice somewhat. When I read it, he's the one that kind of comes off as having these racist notions. I mean, I don't necessarily have to attribute them to H.P. Lovecraft. Right. I know that he felt that way, yeah. and I know that this was his reaction to moving to New York, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is... um. The second story that Lovecraft actually wrote while he was in New York. The last one being Shunt House. House. Yeah, that was in New York. And it's kind of funny when you talked about this being kind of a different sort of thing for Lovecraft. He submitted the Shunt House to Detective Tales magazine, which was the same publisher as Weird Tales. Okay. But they turned it down. And he was like, well, maybe I should uh, take this Red Hook thing and kind of make it a little bit of a detective story. Uh, so that's the idea behind right. behind this. Is He was, he was writing to the magazine. Yeah, well, I mean, not officially. Yeah. He just thought that if he made it like this, you know, it would probably be more... Well, that makes sense, then. It is a strange protagonist for him. I mean, the the guy's not a scholar, necessarily. I mean, he's a Dublin University graduate. Yes. But he's he's this Irish cop who works the streets in New York. Thomas Malone. Thomas Malone, and he wants to uh, dig around in these dirty places like Red Hook in in Brooklyn, Mm -hmm. where Lovecraft lived for a short time. With his wife, Sonia. With his wife, Sonia. Yeah. You know, Red Hook's still there. It's pretty hard to scrabble. I think it's still a pretty dangerous neighborhood. Is it? Okay, yeah. yes, I'm not sure. I'm not an East Coast person, so I don't, I'm not as intimate with the no. area. But I think they have, you know, an arts festival there now, and they're they're working towards making a little, right, a little right. nicer and preserving its history. But I have ever heard uh, Zach Galifianakis, yeah, the comedian, he was talking about how he lives in Brooklyn and they're gentrifying it and it annoys him because there's all these hipsters and stuff around. Right, right, yeah. Once the, the coffee shops start moving in and the uh, <laughs> upscale tattoo parlor. So this uh, story is in seven chapters. We get a little of um, an introduction to our main character in the first. Not many weeks ago, on a street corner in the village of Pasco, Rhode Island, a tall, heavily built, and wholesome-looking pedestrian furnished much speculation by a singular lapse of behavior. He had, it appears, been descending the hill by the road from Chapachet, and encountering the compact section had turned to his left into the main thoroughfare where several modest business blocks convey a touch of the urban. At this point, without visible provocation, he committed his astonishing lapse, staring queerly for a second at the tallest of the buildings before him, and then with a series of terrified hysterical shrieks, breaking into a frantic run which ended in a stumble and fall at the next crossing. 
Picked up and dusted off by ready hands, he was found to be conscious, organically unhurt, and evidently cured of his sudden nervous attack. So, so that's our introduction. <laughs> that's our guy. He just, to uh, police detective Thomas Mullen. Sees a building, screams like a girl, and runs. Yeah, falls down, <laughs> gets falls up, down. says, no, no, I'm fine. Um, I'm doing okay. So I meant yes. to do that. Yeah. Malone is now residing in Chapachet because he had been involved in a raid back in New York mm-hmm. in which several buildings collapsed suddenly, killing many of his companions and the, and the people who were trapped inside. Yeah. And because of this, he's developed a phobia of urban, tall buildings. Yeah. Which so are, that, that's why he goes to Rhode Island. Yeah. Kind of just... His mistake is he went to go get some magazines and he didn't know that that part of the town was as urban as it is. Yes. Freaked him out. And you know what? If it was just a simple building collapsing and killing a bunch of people, I think that would be pretty darn traumatic. Oh, you know, yeah. being Absolutely. Something like that. Absolutely. But it's hinted that there's much more involved in the incident with the collapsed building. Right. Some evil from Elder World. Well, and they also talk about him being, you know, he's of Irish descent. He's Celtic. Right. And he also, ha- he's kind of uh, sensitive. He, he sort of understands that the, the otherworldliness of things. He's, yeah, yeah. He's got like this sort of, not quite psychic, but insight into the greater dark realm. Yeah, yeah, he's like a mystic uh, cop. So we really get to know Malone better in, in chapter two. To Malone, the sense of latent mystery in existence was always present. In youth, he had felt the hidden beauty and ecstasy of things, and had been a poet. But poverty and sorrow and exile had turned his gaze in darker directions, and he had thrilled at the imputations of evil in the world around. He would often regard it as merciful that most persons of high intelligence jeer at the inmost mysteries. For, he argued, if superior minds were ever placed in fullest contact with the secrets preserved by ancient and lowly cults, the resultant abnormalities would soon not only wreck the world, but threaten the very integrity of the universe. All this reflection was no doubt morbid, but keen logic and a deep sense of humor ably offset it. Malone was satisfied to let his notions remain as half-spied and forbidden visions to be lightly played with, and hysteria came only when duty flung him into a hell of revelation too sudden and insidious to escape. An interesting characterization, no doubt. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, and of course, the other thing about Malone is that he's a racist, <laughs> you know, as it becomes clear. He talks about Red Hook here in this chapter oh, yes. and how it's a maze of hybrid squalor, a babble of sound and filth. It's pretty heavy with uh, racist language, but it really does sound like a small town guy got squeezed into a city. It's a bunch of foreigners and they're just freaking him out. Right. Which is what was the case. His wife, uh, in one of her stories, she said that whenever we found ourselves in racially mixed crowds which characterized New York, how would we become livid with rage? He almost seemed to lose his mind. I don't know. It just seems less insidious and more kind of innocent and uh, stupid. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> you know? I, I think most racism comes from just ignorance. like people, Fear of the unknown. Fear right? of the unknown. Yeah. He just doesn't know how to deal with these people. They're speaking languages. They're doing things he doesn't know. They don't look like anybody he knows. Mm-hmm. And he's just scared of it. And, yeah. and get, makes him angry because he doesn't like being scared. Now, Malone, we learn as that second chapter is filled out, when he's talking about how dangerous and seedy it is down there, Malone suspects that there's some sort of secret continuity to the whole thing. And right. all of these foreigners have brought with them old world cult rituals. And, and, he, ma- and he again uh, mentions Miss Murray's witch cult of Western Europe, which right. is this theory that this woman had that all paganism is passed down from generation to generation and they're all connected to one another. Yeah. And what Lovecraft, you know, that really, that idea got him really excited that all these religions and cults are all actually the same thing and worshiping yeah. the and same They're all based gods. in this ancient sort yeah. of goddess worship, which is what Malone thinks and he suspects about this place. And, and the way he talks about the foreigners and all this ancient cult stuff and how they have powers and everything, I was like, geez, I'd rather be one of the foreigners. They got magic. (laughs) 
Then we move into the third chapter and we get into the case that brought Malone to Red Hook. This guy, Robert Sidon, is yep. that correct pronunciation? Rob, uh, yeah, I looked up on, because uh, I wasn't sure how to pronounce the name, because it's spelled S-U-Y-D-A-M, but according to pronunciation of upstate New York places and names, it's pronounced Sidem. Okay. Sidem. Well, he lives in an old mansion in Flatbush, which is close to Red Hook, and uh, he's a great big fat person. <laughs> and he describes him as being corpulent. Uh-huh. Um, he's over 60, basically keeps to himself. Although he's known as a, some kind of authority on medieval superstition. Yes. That's yes. what people say about him. Sidem became a case when his distant and only relatives sought court pronouncements on his sanity. Their actions seemed sudden to the outside world, but was really undertaken only after prolonged observation and sorrowful debate. It was based on certain odd changes in his speech and habits wild references to impending wonders and unaccountable hauntings of disreputable Brooklyn neighborhoods. Simon's family are trying to get him committed because he's spending all of his time hanging out with weird foreigners. Yeah, down at Red Hook. In fact, down he's got Red a little Hook. basement flat down there uh-huh. where he hangs out. And he's been spending all of his money on importing ancient tomes from overseas. Uh-huh. But when he gets questioned in court about this because they want to institutionalize him, Sidem is totally cogent. He's like, look, I'm down there. I'm, I'm researching European traditions. I got to see what these people do. I'm looking at folk dances and right. folk mm-hmm. rituals. And uh, the private detectives who'd been investigating the case are pulled off because of this. He wins the court case. But the cops and some federal authorities then come in yeah. because over the course of this private investigation, they found that Sidem has connections with a bunch of really important criminals. Yeah, the whole criminal, well not the whole criminal, but, but a big part of the criminal underworld of Red Hook. In this work, it developed that Sidem's new associates were among the blackest and most vicious criminals of Red Hook's devious lanes, and that at least a third of them were known and repeated offenders in the matter of thievery, disorder, and the importation of illegal immigrants. Indeed, it would not have been too much to say that the old scholar's particular circle coincided almost perfectly with the worst of the organized cliques, which smuggled ashore certain nameless and unclassified Asian dregs wisely turned back by Ellis Island. In the teeming rookeries of Parker Place, since renamed, where Sidem had his basement flat, there had grown up a very unusual colony of unclassified slant-eyed folk who used the Arabic alphabet but were eloquently repudiated by the great mass of Syrians in and around Atlantic Avenue. They could all have been deported for lack of credentials, but legalism is slow-moving and one does not disturb Red Hook unless publicity forces one to. Malone figures that most of these slant-eyed folk are uh, Kurds, right? Yeah, yeah. That, uh, that they're Mongolian blood, but uh, come out of uh, Kurdistan, which is n- northern Iraq. And they've brought their ancient religions over. And so Malone digs in the investigation, which gets us into the fourth chapter and starts with my favorite line in the story. Police methods are varied and ingenious. <laughs> ingenious. Are you prepared for the intellectual workings of good cop, bad cop? <laughs> Well, basically, Malone questions people that won't talk in Red Hook. Most mm-hmm. people, they just don't talk down there. No snitches. And he finds out that, yeah, these people that are coming in, they're, they're Kurds. And they're here because some god or, or priesthood had promised them unheard of powers in the, right. in the new world. Most of them are working as criminals and bootleggers, but the rest have no real visible means of support. So and what he, are they doing? What are they doing? Yeah. And he knows that the people are being imported illegally into the city through some underground pool or, or, or canal. Canal, uh-huh. Yeah, but he can't find it. Well, he wants to learn more, but because of the, it says there's a stupid conflict between the city and federal authorities, he's pulled off the case suddenly. Right. 
And while he's pulled off, a weird thing happens. Sidem suddenly starts dressing well. Yeah, his hair his hair kind of darkens, which never happens. He loses a bunch of weight. He's got a spring in his step and a sparkle in his eye. I know. <laughs> well, it's it's very strange. He, he starts being a society guy. Uh-huh. You know, he renovates his mansion. He stops hanging out in Red Hook. And the evil foreigners in Red Hook, they start congregating more around this dance hall instead of his place now. Yeah, well, it's an old church, uh, which is converted into a dance hall. Right. So he often calls it the dance hall church. Then two things happen. Sidem gets engaged. Yeah. After this transformation mm-hmm. to a girl named Cornelia Garretson, who's a, actually a distant relative of his. <laughs> right, but a, a society woman. Yeah, she's a society girl. And then another thing happens, a kidnapped child's face is seen in the window of this dance hall church right. in Red Hook. Mm-hmm. So the police, including Malone, they, they raid that dance hall church. Yeah. And, and shortly after that, he mentions that there's almost like a kidnapping epidemic in this Yeah, it's, right. it's all over the, you know, all of Red Hook in this area. Kids are disappearing. Yeah. Nobody knows where they're going. They're not finding bodies. No, they're children of the low born. Yes. So people wouldn't notice, except that there's, it's in large volumes. Right. You know, and the press is after it. So uh-huh. people are, people care. So Malone and the police, they raid this dance hall church and it's mostly empty. They don't find kids there, but they find this Greek inscription on the wall above the pulpit that he yeah. recognizes from his Dublin university days. And the translation literally reads, O friend and companion of night, thou who rejoicest in the baying of dogs and spilt blood, who wanderest in the midst of shades among the tombs, who longest for blood and bringest terror to mortals. Gorgo, Mormo, thousand-faced moon, look favorably upon our sacrifices. What's that all about? Lovecraft lifted that from the Encyclopedia Britannica. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> from the magic section. Uh-huh. Uh, he, he looked up. He actually uses it again later in the story, uh, but he takes it from the de- demonology section of the Encyclopedia Oh, wow. Britannica. All right. So, so you know, he just uh, uses the same books that I would use when I was uh, doing yeah. my uh, reports in, in high school and junior high. Takes some of the arcane, you know, you know forbiddenness <laughs> out of it when it's the... the... When it's Encyclopedia yeah. Britannica. Yeah. Well, because of this kidnapping epidemic that is going on, Malone and the cops get to scour Red Hook. And unfortunately, they, they don't really ever find any evidence of kidnapping in that past, but they find no. plenty of screwed up stuff. There's paintings of monsters in some of these mm-hmm. places. There's pentagrams everywhere. Yeah, a lot of mar- mystical, arcane, foreign yeah. stuff. Yeah. Supernatural things. We move into chapter five, which finds us on Sidem's wedding day. He and his new wife get hitched up in Flatbush. It's a big, crazy ceremony. Uh-huh. Um, this old Dutch church. And then they go to the pier, and the the new couple, they jump on board this liner, probably Mm -hmm. headed off to some land where there are only whites and people are nice. (laughs) You know, none of these swarthy swarthy folks running around. And something screwy happens immediately. There's this scream from the stateroom. And the sailor who goes up to the stateroom first to find out what's going on, he loses his mind immediately. Freaks out, yeah. Yeah. The ship's doctor goes in after him, and whatever was in the stateroom is on its way out, which is probably why the doctor didn't go crazy as well. Right. Said he just sees some phosphorescence go out of the porthole. The couple's murdered. We know the wife was strangled. She was strangled, but not by his hands. Whoever did the strangling had inhuman-shaped hands. There's a claw mark on her throat. A claw mark, yeah. Yeah. And on the wall... Mm -hmm. is it in blood? Well, Hate the doctor, it says that he just sees it like for a minute uh, in hateful red. That's what it says. But it flickers for an instant on the wall. And then it's gone. And then it's gone. Yeah, and it's Lilith. Yeah. Which is, according to Hebrew mythology, kind of the source of all evil spirits. Lilith and Adam were made both of earth. And so Lilith wouldn't lay underneath Adam. She wouldn't be subservient to him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Ooh, it's <laughs> evil. 
I know, so evil. And uh, she was cast out of Eden. Uh So God goes, well, I'm not going to do that again. And he takes the rib out of Adam and then makes Eve from from Adam. So she's subservient to to the man. But Lilith is like kind of the first feminist. You know, she's like, I'm not going to put up with this stuff. But of course, she's labeled as the the bringer of all evil spirits. And she went out into the wilderness and had sex with animals. And then like every monster and creature and evil spirit is from her. So. So that's Lilith. She's also a great concert promoter. I really enjoyed her uh, her shows over the years. <laughs> well, while they're dealing with the chaos on board the liner, this tramp steamer shows up and a horde of insolent ruffians jump off. And they say, we want Sidem's body. It's like they knew something bad was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And in fact, they have a note from Sidem himself that says, if anything happens to me, you got to give my body to these guys. They're the only ones that can help, whatever right. that means. So they're like, this has a signature on it. I mean, okay. They give the body up. The cops do. And, and the, the swart little ruffians they uh right and the rather a rather um terrible uh description of the ruffian yeah it's a pretty pretty racist it's pretty horrible yeah, yeah which we're gonna skip yeah but they bring it out in in sheets and uh they say their pockets are bulging damnably so they got something else <laughs> out of that room too i think it was you know there was some racks where some bottles should have been but they're not there oh, um and we get into chapter six. Now, Malone has been working at Red Hook. He doesn't even know what's going on no. at Flatbush. This is totally, totally separate thing going yeah. on here. And all he knows is that folks are real stirred up in the neighborhood that night. Because more kids have disappeared. Mm-hmm. And, and some of the sturdy Vikings, you know, in the neighborhood nearby, they're starting to form a mob. Right, they're, the Norwegians. They're sturdy Vikings. <laughs> they're Norwegian. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so it would be great if they actually were Vikings. Yeah, don't go into that section of town unless you want to be raped and pillaged. <laughs> uh, so at midnight, all these raiding parties form with the police. And, and Malone says, hey, I'm going to go focus on Sidem's basement flat. Because yep. I heard that they're not turned up anything at the church. The flat, he thought, must hold some clue to a cult of which the occult scholar had so obviously become the center and leader. And it was with real expectancy that he ransacked the musty rooms, noted their vaguely charnel odor and examined the curious books, instruments, gold ingots, and glass-stoppered bottles scattered carelessly here and there. Once, a lean black-and-white cat edged between his feet and tripped him, overturning at the same time a beaker half full of red liquid. The shock was severe, and to this day Malone is not certain of what he saw, but in dreams he still pictures that cat as it scuttled away with certain monstrous alterations and peculiarities. Then came the lock cellar door and the search for something to break it down. A heavy stool stood near, and its tough seat was more than enough for the antique panels. A crack formed and enlarged, and the whole door gave way, but from the other side, whence poured a howling tumult of ice-cold wind with all the stenches of the bottomless pit, and whence reached the sucking force not of earth or heaven, which coiling sentiently about the paralyzed detective, dragged him through the aperture and down unmeasured spaces filled with whispers and wails and gusts of mocking laughter. The part with the cat's really creepy. Yeah, that's really good, actually. That part's really creepy. That was a good one. So Malone, he broke in the cellar door and he got, like, sucked into some crazy world. Yeah. The descriptions are pretty trippy. I mean, it's kind of even hard to understand what's going on. Yeah, he he says that it must have been a dream, whatever happened. And it is pretty dreamlike in his description. But basically, it's kind of like this monster festival, you know? Yeah, they're shapeless, elemental things. Yeah, a mad monster party. It's a mad monster party, exactly. <laughs> and there's some uh, some dark, sticky water lapping somewhere. And, and most importantly, there's this tittering, naked, phosphorescent thing that swims up to the shore of that water and climbs onto a carbon golden pedestal. Yeah, and they say that the, it's Lilith. He says it's Lilith. She is the phosphorescent thing. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I yeah. was imagining a little goblin guy or something like that. 
Well, I mean, she's made like monstrous according to okay. myth too. She doesn't look like a you know woman. So into this crazy world, a boat pulls up, uh-huh. and several dark men climb out with the corpse of Sidon. Yep. So they've they've come from that liner, and they prop the body up in front of this altar with uh-huh. the phosphorescent thing on it, and they pull the bottles of from their pockets, and it's this red stuff, and they anoint the feet of the corpse. They give some to the weird thing to, to drink from. It's too. a little yeah, they give to a little and uh, then. Lilith, the thing, grabs the corpse. They hear some music off in the distance, and everybody starts kind of dancing around and heading towards that music uh-huh. with, you know, the thing holding the corpse a lot. And Malone tries to follow, but he collapses on the ground in terror. And uh, he hears them chanting that Mormo-Greek incantation, and then they say, Lilith, great Lilith, behold the bridegroom. So he's, so it's like Lilith is going to marry him, Sidon? Yeah, I don't, I don't Sidon's know. Sidon's corpse? Well, the corpse gets up and starts to move around. Exactly. The luminosity of the crypt, lately diminished, had now slightly increased. And in that devil light, there appeared the fleeing form of that which should not flee or feel or breathe. The glassy-eyed, gangrenous corpse of the corpulent old man, now needing no support but animated by some infernal sorcery of the right just closed. After it, raced the naked, tittering, phosphorescent thing that belonged on the carbon pedestal, and still farther behind panted the dark men and all the dread crew of sentient lonesomenesses. The corpse was gaining on its pursuers, and seemed bent on a definite object, straining with every rotting muscle toward the carved golden pedestal whose necromantic importance was evidently so great. Another moment, and it had reached its goal, whilst the trailing throng labored on with more frantic speed, but they were too late. For in one final spurt of strength which ripped tendon from tendon and sent its noisome bulk floundering to the floor in a state of jellious dissolution, the staring corpse which had been Robert Sidem achieved its object and its triumph. The push had been tremendous, but the force had held out, and as the pusher collapsed to a muddy blotch of corruption, the pedestal he had pushed tottered, tipped, and finally careened from its onyx base into the thick waters below, sending up a parting gleam of carven gold as it sank heavily to undreamable gulfs of lower Tartarus. In that instant, too, the whole scene of horror faded to nothingness before Malone's eyes, and he fainted amidst a thunderous crash which seemed to blot out all the evil universe. The corpse of Sidon just ran up and pushed the pedestal over with Lilith on it, and... uh, defeated her evil oh no i thought she was chasing him because that 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 pedestal is the really important for some reason like it's some kind of artifact that's got all this stuff going on and he he knows that if he can stop whatever's happening if he pushes it over somehow he knew that thing yeah I, I yeah it's it's kind of strange because when i i don't know exactly you know he obviously had a part in all this stuff Sinem did so why did he had to change change his mind like he is defeating her or defeating her purpose but obviously he was helping her out beforehand right and now was that the change when he got more when he lost all the weight and that yeah was... maybe he made a deal with the devil sort of thing right, and then that's right. why he got you know when he felt good and lost weight and his hair yeah. got darker again and but uh, here he's an old fat guy again his corpse it's like it's reverted back yeah so maybe once he realized this is the price he had to pay to get all that success he he wasn't into it and then he kind of you know turned on her i don't know but it's pretty pretty crazy. It's, it's pretty nuts, and yeah. and a little hard to follow. And so after Malone faints, yeah, um, of course, we get into the last chapter. And that crash he's referring to, I reckon, is with the, all the houses collapsed at that very moment. Yes. So it's like a combination of the cleansing bolt of lightning plus the houses collapsing from the street. The street, yeah. Um, it's all that stuff. 
And only people like Malone, who were underground or in the cellars, survive these these houses collapsing. Mm -hmm. Since he's down there, he's okay. They find him next to a pool of water where there's all sorts of bones and stuff, including Sidem's yeah. down there in the cellar with them. And that they re recognize him from dental records. Now, the, the canal under this house was clearly where certain people were being smuggled in. And Malone, you know, intimates that Sidem must have been the ringleader in this operation of smuggling people mm -hmm. in. And uh, there's actually a tunnel that goes from his basement flat to the dance hall church yep. where they find cells yeah, that some... have mothers in them and some screwed up babies. Or yeah, there's, yeah, there's the mothers are insane and they have children that are deformed uh, and weird and mm -hmm. then once they bring out the children into the, the sunlight, they die. Meaning that they probably were, you know, offspring of monsters and women. Yeah, there's yeah. a Latin quote there that says, you know, can incubi and succubi produce children, right? Right, yes. And that is also from the Encyclopedia Britannica <laughs> uh, under the demonology section, yeah. which is pretty awesome that the Encyclopedia Encyclopedia Britannica has a demonology section. Oh, which sure. I wouldn't even think that it would have that. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that was always so great when you, you know, your kid, you go to the library and look up all the occult and, oh, yeah. and Satan books and Absolutely. see all the wood carvings and get freaked out. Yeah, you know? I did that. Well, so the streams underground, they drain them, they dredge them, they find bones. Lots of different bones. Lots of different bones that tell them this is where the kidnapped kids were ending up. Yeah. But there's no real legal proof to condemn uh, Sidem and all this. Yeah, no. Um, but, he, you know, he's dead and the police are just happy to report they've broken up the kidnapping. Right? Yeah. Red Hook, though. As we find out in this last chapter, it, it stays the same. Yeah. Criminals and foreigners. Some police think those crypts have been dug out again. And at the end of the tale, one officer says he recently overheard this swarthy, squinty hag teaching a small child a phrase. Uh huh. And it's that same phrase. Oh, friend and companion of night. Thou who rejoicest in the baying of dogs and spilt blood, who wanderest in the midst of shades among the tombs, who longest for blood and bringest terror to mortals, Gorgo. Mormo, thousand-faced moon, look favorably upon our sacrifices. And that's the end of the story. That's the end. Well, Chad, uh, how, do, how do you feel about this story? Eh, here's the thing, you know, people have been actually kind of anticipating this when we've touched on racist stuff mm -hmm. in the past. They said, oh, wait till you get the horror of Red Hook. You know what? The reason not to read the story actually has less to do with that than it does with just it's kind of a lame story. Yeah. It's not very well done. And no. You know, who really... I don't care about anything that happens to anybody. And You know, uh, Lovecraft himself didn't like this story. Oh, good. He says, um, in a letter to Frank Belknap Long, the story deals with hideous cult practices behind the gangs of noisy young loafers whose essential mystery has impressed me so much. The tale is rather long and rambling, and I don't think it's very good, but it represents at least an attempt to extract horror from an atmosphere to which you deny any quality save vulgar commonplaceness. In that it is a different setting for him, he's correct. But, I mean, it's an urban setting. Yeah, and, and I, it's funny, he calls noisy young loafers, Yeah, is what he says, which... Um, I think it actually comes up kind of in the story, too, that, that he doesn't know what these people do. Right. You know, like, or Malone doesn't. Mm -hmm. He's like, what do these people do for jobs? And I'm sure Lovecraft was thinking that. It's like, who are these people they can sit out on the front porch all day? You know, like, what are they doing? Why don't they have jobs? And, of course, Lovecraft himself doesn't have a job. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> See,
See, that's how I feel about white people all over the city. Like, when I'm out at lunch during work and I see these, like, young actors and they're loafing around, I know they don't have jobs. Like, yeah, how, where, where, how are they making a living? Yeah, I don't know. Where are these trust funds coming from? Well, how did you feel about it? There's a couple neat things in there. And I like the idea of, like, having this a, a detective, a cop, mm. you know, kind of checking into the supernatural stuff, which is a very early type of thing, which is used all throughout science fiction. And, right. And, you know, all through the 20th century. Cops that check out supernatural stuff, like X-Files or... Um, you know, they're not cops, they're federal agents, but still yeah. authority guys that their job is to kind of check this stuff out. Yeah, so yeah. this is kind of a, a good precursor to all that stuff. True. In setting that is horror, you know, it's ancient horror in an urban setting uh-huh. with a hard-boiled police detective who's sensitive to occult things. In those respects, neat. In almost all aspects of execution, crappy. Yeah, it's just, uh, just poorly written. Yeah, poorly and, written, stupid, I mean, offensive stuff in there. Yeah. But why even get, I don't, you know, I don't even see the point in paying I don't think it's worth even giving the attention to this story for those reasons. So we should just delete this whole podcast? Yeah, let's just get rid of it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I have nothing nothing more to say about the the horror of Red Hook. I started with very little to say, and I'm ending with very little to say. What are we doing next? Next week is He, which Which is is another New York story. Another New York story, yeah. Yeah. This is about a guy who moves to New York and, you know, does all that stuff. So it's pretty obviously Lovecraft and how it was a mistake that he moved, you know. (laughs) Went to New York, um, but that's that'll be next week. Yeah, and we want to. I want to thank uh, Stephen Brewster again for yeah, reading Brewster, for us. Brewster's a New York native, actually. So, oh yeah. Oh, with that, I'm Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer, and this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com. HPPodcast.com. Ah!